0: season is so important for Christians and we should always remember all the truths that every Holy Week reminds us of, but it's good to dedicate some special focus to it seasonally. And now we are back into our exposition of Matthew, which we're calling the Unexpected Kingdom. But before we jump into today's text, I want to take just a couple of minutes for what I suppose we could call a family chat. I literally have this much in my notes to say, so don't worry, it's not going to take very long. It's sort of a little preview for our Q2 congregational meeting next week. Just several weeks ago in our February Leadership Summit where the elders and deacons get together every year and pray and think through what God is doing at our church and seek his face about what he would have us do, we discussed together some areas of ministry here at Redeemer that may be in need of some refinement for the sake of the glory of God and the good of our people and our mission of being and making disciples together. And we, we heard some feedback together that led to all of us agreeing as a leadership team that some areas of ministry in our church, particularly in light of some of the challenging season that we've been through over the last couple of years, ministers and ministries have been dealing with some fatigue due to, frankly, kind of a, a, a lack of staff being a, being a, a smaller church. And what we agreed together was one of the main points of fatigue and need for our attention was the E412 Children's Ministry, that time from 9.30 to 10.15 where there's some Bible classes going on downstairs along with the nursery and the preschool. And we're going to talk about this more next week at our congregational meeting, but wanted to put it before you this week ahead of time, so you could be thinking and praying together and and asking questions that you might have. Because what we as the elders have been praying and thinking about ever since then, so it's been a couple of months now, is taking a six-month hiatus, at least, from our E412 children's Bible class time in that hour from 9.30 to 10.15. So starting this summer, in June, we're not going to have kids' classes during the E412 Bible glass time. Rather, we're all going to be up here, where the adults have been, and we're going to call it something like family Bible time, where we'll all be together, and we're going to start by looking in however long it takes us, maybe that full six months, um, at the whole story of the scriptures together, from start to finish, the whole scope, the what we would call biblical theology, the whole story, all together as families. There'll be interaction, there'll be small groups. We are definitely going to get the kids up in front of everybody and embarrass them. It's going to be great. And so we're going to evaluate after six months or so and see if the Lord would have us go back to children's classes. Should we have the staff to do that or to continue waiting until the Lord brings more uh, workers, if I could put it that way, when it comes to the children's ministry. So we would love your feedback. We would love your input. We would love your questions over the next several weeks, including this week leading up to our congregational meeting next week. Makes sense? Don't usually do that. Very rarely do I get up here or any of the elders get up here and have a little short thing to say before the sermon, but we seemed it seemed to us to be a good idea to do that this week. Okay. For real, Matthew 12. We need to catch up a little bit because it's been several weeks since we've been there. Several weeks ago we took sort of a bird's eye view Of Matthew 12 1 through 21 and then the next few weeks we focused on the Lenten Holy Week season leading up to Resurrection Sunday last week and what I said several weeks ago is that after that after that season of of Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday we were going to come back to Matthew 12 and take those sections one at a time so a few weeks ago we looked at the whole section 1 through 21 this week and in the next several weeks we're going to go through it a little more slowly. And so today, we are looking at what I'm calling part one of what I'm calling Christ is Lord, this section of these several verses, because I think that's the through line of these verses, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, we're in the context of a string of passages, including the one that we uh, started with in the call to worship this morning at the end of chapter 11, where this section of Jesus' teaching is, is very confrontational for those who are listening to him. In the beginning of chapter 11, confronting those who are having a hard time with his timing and his his methods in terms of his messianic ministry. A little bit later on, literally calling that generation of the Jews spoiled children because they weren't on board with what he was doing. And then in the, towards the end of chapter 11, pronouncing woes, on unrepentant cities. And then at the end of the section, what Brian read for us in the call to worship, this call to undeserving sinners to rest in him and receive his grace. And at the end of that section, in, in, in chapter, what we call chapter 11, we see in verses 28 through 30 that Jesus is concerned about people who are weary and heavy laden, burdened with a difficult Yoke, And we saw several weeks ago when we did our bird's eye overview that Jesus was referring to the burdensome requirements that the Pharisees and scribes put on the people of Israel in an effort to seek to follow God's law to the letter at all times. And so in chapter 12 then, Matthew starts off by giving us an example of this, by telling us this story of the Pharisees and their concern with the letter of the law when it came to Sabbath day observance, and then the subsequent confrontation that they have with Jesus. So let's read verses 1 through 8 again. It was read for us just a few moments ago, but let's get it back into our, into our brains here. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Jesus, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And then Jesus said to the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If you are a resident of Brighton... Perhaps you are aware of this already, and I'm just telling you something that you've thought about like I have for a long time. But off Telluride Street, which was kind of on the west end of the subdivision where my family and I live, Brighton East Farms, sort of west of that Fairview Cemetery there, there is this little pond in that subdivision that's not technically Brighton East Farms, but it's right by it. And there's a street that goes through that pond. That street's called Chavez Street. And this little road that goes through the pond is closed. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. Okay, so those of you who live in Brighton probably know what I'm talking about. There's these concrete barricades on either side where you can't get through that street. There's road-closed signs, and I see frequently, as do some of you, people parked on one side of the concrete barricades and get their fishing stuff out and go sit on the side of the road and, and fish in those ponds. But that road wasn't always closed. In fact, I remember when it wasn't, and some of you do as well. Do any of you know what happened Well, that road kept getting flooded, whether it would be, I know we don't get a ton of rain around here, but when we get rain, that road would get flooded. The pond would go over the street and they'd have to temporarily close the road and bring in some industrial pump to pump out the water so that the water would go down and that road would open again. So it would be temporarily closed and then open and then temporarily closed and open back and forth and back and forth. But eventually they never reopened it. You know why? Well, as I understand it and Our good buddy, No Way, whose daughter was just born last night, is not here to clarify perfectly for us having all the ins and outs of the city ordinance and municipality stuff working for the city. But as I understand it, the HOA of that subdivision and the local government, to whatever extent that is being expressed, couldn't come to an agreement on whose responsibility it is to fix that road or the pond so that it doesn't flood according to the law and so what we have here in that case is a dispute about the law and that's exactly what we have in verses 1 through 8 a dispute about the law and I suppose I should also say you can also ask Katie Shaheen who also works for the city if she knows all the ins and outs of what's going on there and if we'll ever have Chavez Street open again A dispute about the law. The disciples and Jesus are traveling to synagogue, verse 9 tells us, and the disciples are hungry. They start to take some wheat off the edges of the fields and eat. And the Pharisees, who are evidently nearby, whether they're traveling to synagogue with them or not, object to this. Why? Is it because it was against the law to take grain from the fields? No. Jewish law allowed for the poor and hungry to take some from the edges of fields. They disputed and objected because it was Saturday. It was Shabbat or the Sabbath, the day of rest when no work was allowed for God's people. But the controversy that followed wasn't about whether or not the Sabbath was something that Jesus believed in or that the Jews should continue to follow. Rather, the reason for the controversy that followed was about the Pharisees and scribes objection to what they perceived to be a violation of the Sabbath. The Pharisees and scribes taught and adhered to a strict code when it came to what exactly constituted as work on the Sabbath. Now, bear with me for just a moment. This might sound or feel a little technical, it's only going to take a minute. I want to take us to a few Old Testament passages to give us some context of what it was in their hearts and minds as they considered the Sabbath. Of course, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, we have this this law to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there it is in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Get all your work done in the six days previous. And on the seventh, rest. No work. Then if you go to Exodus 35 a little bit later, we have a specific example given to us. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. And here's an example. You shall kindle no fire in your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Once again, get it ready ahead of time. No work on the Sabbath. You could go to another book in Numbers a little bit later in the Pentateuch where it says, While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said, This man shall be put to death some scholars think that that gathering of sticks is literally exactly related to Exodus 35 talking about kindling firewood in your in your living place you should get that all done ahead of time. So there's another example, gathering sticks, whether that's the same as the firewood kindling or not. Move way on to Nehemiah 13 where it says in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? So literally, these people are conducting business on the Sabbath day, doing work instead of resting in in the Lord. And then a little bit later in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 21 through 22, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not, here's a specific example, bear a burden on the Sabbath day. Or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. And so, what it says in Jeremiah is to not carry a burden or bear a burden or bring it into the gates or bring it into your house. Another example of what work might look like in a violation of the Sabbath. So, that's some context as to what the Old Testament scriptures actually said about what counts as work in the Old Testament law. And what I just read to you was five passages, and from them we get a handful of these guidelines and specific examples of what actually constitutes as a sabbath restriction maybe from them you get five maybe from them you get four examples but it's just a handful of passages and in fact as i read scholars and commentators some of them would put a specific number on it in the old testament we've got five examples or six examples or four examples and then another commentator was like we don't really get any specific examples of how exactly this is supposed to look and so taking the passages that i just read for you as sort of generalizations the point is that the old testament law didn't actually lay out exactly every single kind of example of what constitutes as work or not on the sabbath it required some interpretation it required some thoughtful consideration of what might constitute breaking god's law about sabbath rest for you but listen to this the jewish rabbis Developed over the years a strict list of 39 categories of activity that they believed and taught should be classified as work and therefore restricted from the Jews. Now, let me tell you math was never my best subject continues to be one that I am not very good at helping my children with when it comes to their homework. I split time between a Christian school and homeschool and in neither of them did I enjoy or do very well in math such that as I got to a liberal arts university to get my bachelor's degree I had to take some basic math to just allow me to graduate. So math is not my thing but even I with my limited mathematical abilities can see that 39 is way bigger than maybe four or five. You see what I'm getting at? Why all these, therefore, nitpicky, clear restrictions by the religious leaders? Well, here's one scholar's explanation. And I was going to try to put this into my own words and maybe boil it down a little bit, but I just think R.T. France is going to say it better than I ever could. The Old Testament commandment was clear that no work was to be done. But what is work? Old Testament case law and narrative precedent provided... A few guidelines, but it was a major concern of the scribes to work out more specific rules so that everyone could be sure what was and was not permissible. And anyone who has not read through at least some of these writings, talking about the the case law and 39 examples, will have little idea of the meticulous care and sometimes ingenuity which went into ensuring that every eventuality was covered and nothing was left to private judgment. And so the Pharisees and scribes issue was that they were so afraid to break Sabbath law that they wound up creating more laws instead of following the exact instructions that were recorded in scripture and seeking to follow the spirit of the law in obeying the Lord. That's how you get from maybe five passages or at least a handful of passages of examples of what's restricted and what's allowed to 39 specific laws. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Are you still with me? It was a little bit technical, but it's important for us to know, I think, as we seek to drill down to the core issue of what's in our passage in Matthew 12. What's at the heart of this passage is something far deeper and more meaningful than whether or not something is allowed or not for god's people and it's in jesus's response that we start to see the core issue here with three occurrences of this phrase in matthew 12 have you not read technically two occurrences of have you not read and then another one that's kind of like it in verse 7 if you had known what this means so you see in verse 3 have you not read you see in verse 5, have you not read? And then in verse 7, if you had known what this means, and then quote something that they, of course, had read. And I said this a few weeks ago, but it's worth repeating, and for any of you who weren't here a few weeks ago, it's worth you hearing. This would have been extremely insulting to the Pharisees. To hear some podunk backwater town rabbi say, have you not read from 1 Samuel 21, or have you not read these other passages. The Pharisees had read these passages. In fact, they probably had them memorized. These guys memorized a lot of the Old Testament, and they did actually know the data better than most Jews. But apparently, even though they had read it, they did not understand it the way that they should, or at least some really important parts of it. And so Jesus points them to three Old Testament references that they should have known as being applicable to this situation the first reference he points them to in verse 3 when he says have you not read what David did is a reference to this story of King David eating what was not lawful for him to eat this is from 1st Samuel 21 we're not going to read the whole story for the sake of time but David is on the run he's hungry he approaches the high priest Ahimelech and asks for food and all Ahimelech has is the bread that was consecrated for only the priests to eat. And for non-priests to eat this consecrated, holy bread, set-apart bread, was unlawful. But in the end of the story, in 1 Samuel 21, Ahimelech, the high priest, allows David to eat. And Jesus points to that story as exhibit A, so to speak, of his Case that the Pharisees' objection revealed that they did not understand the scriptures like they wanted everyone else to think that they did. Exhibit B comes in this verse 5. Have you not read? Where he is referencing the law. He says that have you not read in the law, talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of of our Bibles? He's referencing Numbers 28, 9 through 10, where these instructions are given for how the priests are to perform their temple sacrifice duties on the Sabbath. The people of Israel were to make daily sacrifices, even on the Sabbath. And in order for those sacrifices to be offered on the Sabbath daily, someone had to do it, and that's what the priest's job was. And so therefore, technically, though the law said you shall do no work on the Sabbath, The priests who ministered on Shabbat were working. They were performing their duty. And this was literally their job. It's where they got their livelihood. And that's why Jesus even uses this phrase at the end of verse 5. That they profaned the Sabbath but were guiltless. They quote-unquote profaned the Sabbath means they made it common. It was not holy in that way to use that phrase it was an act of work on the sabbath but it didn't bring punishment to these priests who were working on the sabbath and so jesus says have you not read that the third old testament reference is there in verse 7 he introduces it slightly differently by saying if you had known what this means and then quotes hosea 6 6 And in this passage, the prophet Hosea indicts Israel for her hypocrisy as they continued with their religious rituals while acting in other ways that revealed that their hearts were far from God so that their religious ritual obedience was inconsistent with what was inside. And Jesus quotes it. You should have known what this means, he's saying. I desire mercy and not mercy sacrifice. That passage, Hosea 6-6, would have been a well-known saying to Jews who knew their Bibles, but it was one that the Pharisees, Jesus was saying, did not understand as applicable to this situation, which is why he's implying that they should have known what it meant. It meant that mercy and love and grace were weightier matters than the the strict performance of religious ritual and duty and so in jesus's three responses here with three old testament references he basically covers the whole old testament in just these few verses he references the law he references the major prophets and he references the latter prophets and how amazing jesus is to do this he is just the best he masterfully points to the scriptures to make his point three times And as I said, this would have been insulting to the Pharisees. I mean, can you imagine one of us going up to LeBron James and asking if he's ever played basketball or going up to a Shakespearean scholar and asking if they've ever read Henry V or going up to a middle school boy in our age and asking if they've ever heard of Fortnite. The Pharisees must have been turning all sorts of shades of red being questioned like this. And so the issue here, as I'm saying, isn't what's allowed and not allowed on the Sabbath. Rather, I think there are three issues here that Jesus wants us to understand. The first is that these Pharisees should have understood that divine authority overrides the law. It is over the law. Let me explain what I mean. This is why David was allowed to eat the bread of the presence And why the priests were allowed to, quote, profane the Sabbath. Okay, let's think about the David case. David was the anointed king of Israel. And the high priest Ahimelech knew this. And so, listen, David's kingly authority given to him by God, divinely appointed, allowed him to eat of the bread that he otherwise would not have been allowed to eat. And that's also why the priests who were anointed, appointed by God, were given this mediatorial authority where they mediated between God and man, were allowed to work on the Sabbath. Both David and the priests had divinely appointed authority that allowed them to partake in what otherwise would have been restricted and so the first issue here that jesus is dealing with and that the pharisees should have understood, is an issue of authority the law is not the ultimate authority god is God is the one who anointed the king, he's the one who appointed the priests, and these people were in positions of authority from God that may have been allowed in certain cases to override, if you will, those religious restrictions in certain cases because the law originated from God and was therefore under God's authority. And so, of course, he has authority over it. Now, do you notice that what Jesus is doing here, therefore, is implicitly claiming authority over the law? He's saying here, just as David's kingly authority allowed him to sort of override the ritual requirement of the bread, and just as the priest's authority allowed them to work on the Sabbath, so I have authority to allow my disciples to harvest on Shabbat. You see what he says in verse 6? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And this is huge. The reason that the priests were allowed to work on the Sabbath, and as Jesus uses this word, profane it, or make it common in that sense, even though it's intended to be set apart holy, is because the ministry of the temple which is sacrifices being offered for the people so that they could have a relationship with God was more ultimate than the performance, you might say, of Sabbath rest requirements. Another commentator I read this week named Doug O'Donnell put it this way. Temple work trumps Sabbath rest because at the heart of temple work was the people of God having a relationship with him. And in fact, that's at the heart of Sabbath rest anyway. And then Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. So he's arguing implicitly that his presence trumps the temple's work, which trumps Sabbath rest. He's saying here, the temple points to me. Offering sacrifices for the sake of having a relationship with God. Yeah, that's me. I'm God. I'm here now. And so in other words, if temple work trumps Sabbath rest, then logically the presence of God, which the temple is all about, trumps temple work, which trumps Sabbath rest. Do you see what I'm saying? But there's something else here. Look at the last verse in the passage. What does Jesus say? He makes a startling claim. Verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus here uses his favorite name for himself in terms of what we've got recorded in scripture and the amount of times he uses it, and that's the Son of Man. And this title actually is a reference to his divine nature, not his human nature, even though the way it's worded, Son of Man, might make you think it's a reference to his human nature. It's a reference to his divine nature because this title is a reference to an event that takes place in Daniel 7. And I know that this has come up in our unexpected kingdom series already don't check out if you think you know it already though because it's beautiful to see in Daniel 7 the prophet Daniel sees a prophetic vision of one like a son of man approaching and being presented to the ancient of days in other words God himself and this is what Daniel sees to him this one like a son of man this son of man To the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so what Jesus is doing here is calling himself that Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days and receives all authority. Jesus is saying, I'm the guy that the prophet Daniel prophesied about. Friends, that's astonishing. That is a startling claim. He is identifying himself as being the ruler of of all ethnicities, as the text says, all peoples and nations and languages. He is the one that is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that never ends. Jesus was calling himself God in verse 8 of Matthew 12 and therefore claiming for himself authority over the law. And as I said a few weeks ago, this is the whole point, I believe, of this whole Episode and really of these several passages in this section. That Jesus Christ is the Lord. That He is God. That it's the, the point of all the verses leading up to Matthew 12, it's the point of Matthew 12, and it's the point of the whole Bible. It's that Jesus is the Lord, and therefore the Lord of the law. His whole gospel ministry work displayed this. Think about it. Jesus, at this very moment in Matthew 12, was on his way to fulfill the law perfectly, to pay the penalty that the law requires, and to then rise from the dead as we celebrated last week. No one besides Jesus has ever obeyed the righteous requirement found in the law as they're supposed to, not perfectly. And so, therefore, the law calls for blood. It calls for righteousness and for justice to be done when the law is broken. It necessitates judgment. And Jesus, the Lord of the law, shed his blood for us. The law Calls for blood, Jesus sheds his, and now anyone who is found in him is not condemned under the law. That is why we call for people to look to Jesus, the Lord of the law, for salvation. Not to look to themselves for justification. Not to look to their obedience to the law in order to be justified. We can't win people with law. It won't work because the law condemns. And you know, friends, that's also why we continue to look to Jesus and continue to point to Jesus. People aren't converted with the law and they don't grow through the law either. We grow and continue in our Christian walk, as we look to Jesus. And so the point of all this isn't legal precedent. The point is that Jesus is the Lord. He is God incarnate, the divine creator and originator of the law, the reason by behind the law, and the one that the law is pointing to, and the one who fulfilled and personified the law. But the problem is, and we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, The scribes, the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders were what we call legalistic. How we defined legalism a few weeks ago is simply this, a distorted understanding and practice of the law and grace. It's a distorted view of the grace of God in its relationship to the law of God. And we said it can look like all sorts of different ways. It can look like believing actually that your obedience is going to bring salvation. It can look like giving such attention to the minute details that weightier matters are neglected. It can look like adding rules because of fear of breaking the actual rules. It can look like an attitude of superiority because of adherence to stricter standards. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing, and that's exactly why Jesus had a problem with them. These legalists were in effect saying, We're qualified to judge where the law is going to be mitigated, litigated. I'm qualified to determine what's just. They assumed the position of the Lord of the law. But the true Lord of the law was standing before them, and they were being confronted by him. Okay, so authority is the first issue that's underneath this whole episode. The second issue is that they should have realized that grace is, is more central than rule-following. And this is just as big of an issue for Jesus as the issue of authority, because the third passage that Jesus referenced, this third Old Testament passage, is not one with an example of someone having divine authority, appointing them, and then not strictly speaking, rigidly obeying the Sabbath law. Rather, the reference that Jesus makes to Hosea 6.6 is a commendation of mercy, of love over the ritual sacrifices of God's people. Hosea 6 6 was a call to emulate God's love. If you were to turn back just several pages to Hosea 6 6, and I meant to put this on the screen, I'm sorry that I didn't, you'll see in Hosea 6 6 that the way it's phrased is, I desire steadfast love. And not sacrifice. Whereas Matthew 12, Jesus' quote in Matthew 12 is, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But this word translated in our English versions, steadfast love, in Hosea 6 6, is this very important Hebrew word, chesed, is, is what it is. And it is this quintessential descriptor of God's gracious character. Described in the Old Testament. The steadfast love of God is his display, his character and display of undeserved grace to people that he simply loves, regardless of whether or not they ought to be loved. And that is exactly what Jesus means when he uses the word translated for us in Matthew 12 mercy, undeserved love. And he's saying that the Pharisees should have learned from Hosea 6.6 that emulating God's undeserved, gracious love is more essential than ritual obedience. God was saying in Hosea 6.6, your obedience is ultimately empty if you lack grace. And that's part of the issue with the Pharisees' judgment of the disciples in Matthew 12, 1 through 8 The disciples were hungry, but the Pharisees didn't have grace for hungry people. They were more interested in law enforcement. And that's why Jesus says, you should know what Hosea 6-6 means. They were more concerned with the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. They were more worried about logistics than actual people and their well-being. And this, of course, is an illustration of, or you can find an illustration of this, of course, in some of the dangers of a more fundamentalistic devotion to man-made standards and rules and fences that we would put around guidelines or laws in the Scriptures for the sake of holiness. And can I just say, I th- it's one of the main things that concerns me about this growing swell of standards in in. Very current evangelicalism standards for Christian manliness that's supposed to send our society back to godliness. Of course, it's not going to do that. Only grace can transform hearts. No strict extra biblical code of Sabbath laws designed to keep one as safe as possible when it comes to holiness can do that. No made up standard about what should count as work, no made up standard about how. Every godly man should lift weights and go hunting and sing like a bear is going to do that. Only gospel grace can do that. And so here's another example of the Pharisees' legalism. Their distortion of the law and grace. Their legalism disregarded the scripture's heart regarding grace. Because legalism believes that it knows best when grace is called for. But the problem is, sadly, more often than not, legalism always chooses condemnation, rarely chooses grace. And so the spirit of the law about the Sabbath was about acknowledging the number oneness of God, about submitting to Him, about worshiping Him, about resting in His provision instead of continuing to work and rely on self. And the disciples and Jesus were literally on their way to synagogue to worship. And they grabbed some grain to eat as they were hungry. And doing so certainly fulfilled the spirit of a law centered on worship and dependence on God's provision. And so the spirit of the law was more central than the following of the law to the letter. But again, this is very hard for legalists. Because focusing on the spirit of the law actually requires more work. Than just setting up some nice, neat black and white boundaries around the law to make sure that the letter of the law is never crossed in any way. Rather, following the spirit of the law requires some spiritual maturity. It requires the exercise of grace. It requires the exercise of mercy. It requires some flexibility at times. It requires thoughtful and nuanced consideration of an individual situation. And I can't help but think of and remember when the issue of masks during COVID was so frustrating for many Christians along these lines in our church and in churches all over the country because being flexible, being more worried about the well-being of others than logistical accuracy was just flabbergasting for some believers who want a black and white rule to follow so they can feel good about, all right, at least I'm safe. And I don't mean COVID safe, I mean law safe instead of putting in the time and effort and thought and love to read certain situations and determine with God's help whether or not a certain kind of flexibility might be more in the spirit of the law. And you know, friends, you can follow the letter of the law while breaking its spirit. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Have you thought about this? What they were doing here? They were so obsessed with following the letter of the law when it came to the Sabbath that they distorted the Sabbath into a chore. The Sabbath, which was intended for rest, turned into work. The opposite of rest. Having to set up all these guidelines and make sure that you're stressing about not crossing every single line that's there when the spirit of the law was rest. However, I said this a few weeks ago, the letter of the law was actually not being violated in Matthew 12, 1 through 8. It must not be said that Jesus was not concerned with following the law. Jesus was literally the best law keeper in Israel's history. And that's the third underlying issue before us in the text that they should have realized and understood that the disciples and Jesus weren't even breaking the Sabbath law. You notice Jesus uses this word, this phrase in verse 7. If you had known what Hosea 6 6 means, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Pharisees were condemning the innocent with their accusation that he and his disciples were breaking God's law. In other words, they were not breaking God's law. They were guiltless. They were innocent when it came to the law. And that's interesting. Jesus is saying that they were not breaking God's law. They were breaking the Pharisees' law. Remember several minutes ago when I said there were this handful of specifics that the Old Testament gave regarding what exactly counted as work on the sabbath and that vagueness when it comes to the rules is a problem for legalists because their whole identity self-worth and even personal peace is connected to following the rules in order to feel like you're measuring up instead of depending on the grace of god that you accept that he will accept you through faith and so the pharisees as i said a few minutes ago and other leaders created themselves these 39 categories for what they should count as work and as rt france said and i had the quote up on the screen several minutes ago without reading this list you can't gain a full appreciation of what these all are i read through some of these i didn't actually read all of them but two examples that i found amusing is that on the sabbath you weren't allowed to write and or erase more than two letters Okay, where they come up with that. And in fact, examples are given about if you're opening a package that has writing on it and opening the package would like break the line between more than two letters, then you violated the Sabbath. Another one, couldn't help put this one in here. You could sew one stitch if you needed a simple patch but not more than one stitch because two counts as work. And, of course, <laughs> I think of my mom, who you all perhaps know loves cross-stitching. And Holly and others of you who enjoy doing this from time, Nikki, I know, does some, maybe, she, is she in here? Nikki's in here, maybe she's downstairs. Where's Nikki? There's Nikki. Loves to, loves to knit as well. And they even pursue things like cross-stitching and knitting and whatever else as a kind of rest kind of simple enjoyment of life but they're not allowed to do more than one on shabbat because that would constitute as work the pharisees had their own law that superseded god's law that went beyond god's law they were blinded by their legalism they were overcome by their self-righteousness and pride and they missed the point and in so doing judged those who did not deserve it Thus, Jesus says, you would not have condemned the guiltless if you understood the Bible's teaching on mercy and love. The Pharisees made resting, which is the point of the Sabbath, into a chore. It became work to rest. That's how legalism twists God's law. Their self-righteously motivated obsession with obedience to the Sabbath which was intended to bring rest, wound up leading them to distort it into a burden rather than a blessing. And that is not what God's law is for. We talked about this a few weeks ago too, but I'm going to say it again. The law of God is not this arbitrary list from a distant deity who playfully decided to come up with some rules just for fun. The law of God is a good and wise design from the omniscient creator of the universe who knows exactly what his created beings need to flourish and enjoy a relationship with him. And so God's law about the Sabbath was actually about caring for people. Was actually about those people relating to him and resting in dependence on him, not burdening them. The Pharisees and their legalism distorted it into a burden, not the blessing that it was intended for. And so those are the three issues that I think we see here in Matthew 12, 1 through 8. The first issue, an issue of authority. The second issue, an issue of grace. And the third issue was actually an issue of lawfulness or not. And Jesus, in his words to the Pharisees in this little episode, points out each of these issues masterfully and deals with them with scripture and through the scripture deals with legalism and friends that has got to be i think one of our major takeaways from this text that we must follow our lord's example here by dealing with legalism with the scriptures both our own legalism that we are all going to struggle with at one time or another or even the legalism of a brother or sister in our lives or in our very own church or christianity at large if you're given an opportunity to address some of those things dealing with legalism with the scriptures looking to the scriptures following the scriptures what they actually mean and what they actually say even if and when that looking to the scriptures to deal with legalism is going to lead you to repentance that's painful Even if it's going to lead you to have to change your own kind of personal preference on some things and become a little bit more flexible, a little bit more merciful, a little bit more patient and gracious in ways that feel unnatural to you. Even when it means actually speaking a gracious word of correction and confrontation to a brother or sister in Christ who is slipping into a distortion of the law and grace and then walking through that together. Another main takeaway for me, besides dealing with legalism with the scriptures, is this. We must remember that God's grace, God's mercy, is the antidote to legalism. I've seen churches, I've seen relationships, friends, families, greatly damaged by the effects of legalistic judgment, where people are under the judgment of another Christian that they don't deserve. You know, what happens in those settings is that Christians are afraid then to be open and honest about their struggles, then they're left to deal with those struggles alone, and that's not how God has designed us to deal with struggles, and they are stuck, lost, hurting, hiding. Seen Christian leaders becoming self-righteous and ungracious and blinded by their legalism and damaging the people under them. Seen Christian children turning their backs on the faith because they see right through their parents' hypocritical legalism. So we must remember that God's grace, God's mercy, the gospel is the antidote to legalism, the centrality of the message that even though we're sinners, God loves us so much that he sent his son to follow the law perfectly in our place to die and pay its penalty and to rise in victory over death so that we might be saved. Not that through Jesus we can get hell insurance and then have to live perfectly in order to keep him happy. But that through gospel grace every day, Through that same message of God's loving grace towards undeserving sinners, we can be not only saved, but also grow and become more and more like Jesus. It's only the gracious work of God in the heart of a willing and submissive servant of Jesus to see that grace and mercy is more ultimate than ritual obedience, that then legalism will be overcome. Finally, as we move to part two of this section in a couple of weeks, because next week uh, our mission partner Brian Russell is going to be here and give us an update on his ministry, let's not forget the main point of this passage, that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That he is the Lord of the law. That he is greater than David. That he is greater than the Old Testament priesthood that he is greater than the temple as he says in this passage so this first passage and the next one and the one after that all are pointing us to the lordship of jesus so may god give us grace to see him clearly in that light and then live our daily lives in light of it let's pray together oh lord we love your word And we do love your law. We love that you have cared so much for your created beings that you have designed the way we should live. We also know that we have not followed your law. No one has. In the way that we should. Certainly there are moments when we act obediently, but even our obedience is tainted by hearts of sin and rebellion. And so we acknowledge together that we are in need of the Lord of the law in our lives. There may be some gathered here with us today who have never turned to Jesus as Lord for salvation, who have never repented of their sin and believed on Christ. Please, draw them to yourself this very moment and this very day so that they may be saved and enter into this relationship with the Lord. And for all of us who are here this morning who are seeking by your grace to follow you having been saved from sin, please help us to continue to look to Jesus as Lord, to trust in Jesus as Lord, and to remind ourselves of gospel truths, and not simply legalistically rely on the law for holiness and growth. Help us to that end. May our church, even though we will certainly struggle with things from time to time, may we never be characterized with a culture of legalism, but rather one of gospel grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and continue in prayer quietly in our hearts in response to God's word.